Hi, welcome to Season 3 of the Pictures Out There podcast series. This is chat number 14, How Humans Evolve, What's the Matter with Antimatter, Plants That Scream. Are we connected to the whole universe? Curiosity, humility, Marcus Aurelius, Maya Angelou, and more all receive mention and attention today. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Well, hi. Thank you, Candy, for that very kind introduction. This is Dave. And I'm Lee. And welcome to Season 3, Chat Number 14 in the Pictures Out There podcast series. Welcome to our present-day audience. Hello. Hey, y'all. Our audiences in years, decades, and centuries from now. Hey there. Hope things are cool. Our future <laughs> AI audience. Yes. Yes. Lee, we've kind of left the... Bam, 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 or the, you know, the different... Well, I could put in the echo thing. Yeah, yeah do the... Uh, uh, okay, do it, do it now. Our future alien audience. Hello, hello, hello. There you hello. go, good. And our universal audience. So glad to have all of you listening, and thanks for joining us. So we start with our typical questions. What are your ideals, and what are your pictures? So we're very excited about today's podcast because we got some very cool things to talk about that are going on in the field of science today. And guess what? Cool things are always going on in the field of science, right? We're just not often aware of them. Wait a minute, Lee. I mean, you and I aren't scientists. No. We're not scientists. I mean, is it is it okay for us to talk about things that are going on in science? Science, I, science is kind of like math. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, and I don't even have a proper lab coat. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking we're going to use a bunch of words that you and I don't fully understand, but we're actually going to use them. Is that okay? It's okay, okay. because what we're trying to do is build some awareness, which oh. we'll discuss further as we go. Awareness. Cool. So we thought we would briefly hit on just a few of those things that are happening in science today. Since two of our important life tools that we've talked about many times in previous podcasts are our curiosity and our humility. And since advances in science can impact the possibility for our pictures for human society and for our world. Okay. So here we go. Headline, study offers new twist and how the first humans evolved. Wait, this this had to have been like front page news, right? Uh, I think it was more hidden on page 23 between the one ads. This seems like kind of a big deal. I know, but as is customary, I'm speaking as a former journalist, until things become mainstream consciousness, they typically don't make it to the front page or the lead on the nightly news or any of those things. So very probably this started out in an inside page in an old newspaper or <laughs> stated in more modern terms, you had to scroll through several screens in your digital newspaper to get to this. So a new genetic analysis of about 300 people suggests humans emerged at various times and various places in Africa. Let's attribute this to the writer Carl Zimmer, published in May of 2023. Scientists have revealed a surprisingly complex origin of our human species, hmm. rejecting the long-held argument that modern humans arose from one place in Africa during one period in time. Seems like kind of a big deal, you know? So, continuing this story by analyzing the genomes of 290 living people. Okay, Lee, this is going to be the first of several where we're going to use a word genomes 
where I kind of okay, that's kind of the DNA, yeah, thing, yeah, genetic makeup. Do it's I a un- strand of yeah. tissue or something? Do I understand I, everything about that? No. no. Am I aware of it? Yes. yes. And do I want to continue to be aware of it? Yes. yes. Okay. So by analyzing the genomes of 290 living people, researchers concluded that modern humans descended from at least two populations that coexisted in Africa for a million years before merging in several independent events across the continent. Hmm. So an evolutionary archaeologist at the Max Planck Institute in Germany said, there is no single birthplace. This really puts a nail in the coffin of that idea. Well, only an archaeologist would use <laughs> birthplace and coffin in the same sentence, but we'll look past that because we think the science is legitimate. Okay. Absolutely. Paleoanthropologists and geneticists have found evidence pointing to Africa as the origin of the human species. The oldest fossils that may belong to modern humans date back as far as 300,000 years, and they have been unearthed in Africa. And so were the oldest stone tools used by our ancestors. So, human DNA also points to Africa. Living Africans have a vast amount of genetic diversity compared with other people. I did not know that. They and that's do. That's a very interesting. interesting thing. Yes. Here's the because. It's because humans lived and evolved in Africa for thousands of generations before small groups with comparatively small gene pools began expanding to other present-day continents. Within the vast expanse of the African continent, Researchers have proposed various places as the birthplace of our species. Early human-like fossils in Ethiopia led some researchers to look toward East Africa as the origin point. But some living groups of people in South Africa appear to be very distantly related to other Africans, which Hmm. suggests humans might have a deep history there. Isn't it interesting that all of this time later we are continuing to discover new things. Yes. And I think this is one of the situations where people can get frustrated with science mm-hmm. where they go, look, when I go to science, I don't understand all of it. When I go to it, I want certainty. Right. I want you to tell me exactly what it is. And the first time that you change what the knowledge base is that we know, then I just want to discount all of it. Exactly. Yeah. Because I wanted a conclusion that I could hold on to. Yeah. And now, as a consequence of additional research, you telling me it may be something different? Yeah. Well, you must be lying or you must be incompetent or something. Yeah. And we've talked about curiosity, continuing to learn, and humility. Understanding that at any point in time, we don't know everything. It's a journey. So the researchers concluded that as far back as a million years ago, the ancestors of our species existed in two distinct populations. About 600,000 years ago, a small group of humans budded off from what we will call Stem 1 and went on to become the Neanderthals. But Stem 1 endured in Africa for hundreds of thousands of years after that, as did what we will call Stem 2. So did they wear like little uniforms that said Stem 1 on the front? Yeah, they did. (laughs) They did. All right. They had different colors. For clarity. All right. (laughs) And Stem 2 called Stem 1, you Neanderthals, (laughs) you know. You know, there was humor even back then. There was a prehistoric trash talk. (laughs) That's right. So it's possible that climate upheavals... Oh, wait a minute. They had climate Climate change? Climate upheavals? 
climate change. Hmm, I thought that was a myth. Yeah, I thought that was a myth. Anyway, climate upheavals forced these folks into the same regions, leading them to merge into single groups. Why don't we make one team? Yeah. Okay. Whoa. Hey, hey, these guys, look at those guys over there. It kind of conjures up the opening scene of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, yes. Those, the, those guys kind of abused each other. And, and here we're talking about they decided to merge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So some bands of hunter-gatherers may have had to retreat from the coast as sea levels rose. As a consequence of climate change. Oh, geez. Some regions of Africa became arid, potentially sending people in search of new homes. So it is possible that scientists will discover other populations that endured in Africa for hundreds of thousands of years, ultimately helping produce the species as we know it today. Wait, we may not now know everything about it. There may still be stuff to learn. I think there may be stuff to learn. And so. I'm, but I'm supposed to pay attention and give some credence to what we know yes. now. Yes, right. I, we should be acting on that. Yes, even while we know that there's still more we're going to learn. So here comes a horrible pun, but I use it deliberately. Our knowledge about evolution is evolving. Ah, yes. Okay. A doctor who's into this speculated that living in a network of mingling populations across Africa might have allowed modern humans to survive while Neanderthals became extinct. In that context, our ancestors could hold on to more genetic diversity. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Diversity is a good thing? <laughs> that helps you survive? It helped us survive. Wow. That in turn might have helped them endure shifts in the climate and even evolve new adaptations. So here's kind of the why of all of this. You might be going, this is cute. Why does it matter? The diversity at the root of our species may have ultimately been the key to our success. Wow. We might not be living today had it not been for uh, several groups or a multiplicity of origins of the species who finally came together and merged, and because of that mixing of proper DNA, enabled us to be here millennia later. And we think that lesson of diversity might tell us something today? Yeah, possibly. Hmm, I don't know. Yeah, and I want to go on record as being, uh, I'm team STEM too. <laughs> well, I'm uh, STEM one, and I still like you, okay? <laughs> and, and we've talked about the fact that creation is in and of itself a diversity machine, right? That's right. And this whole story and what it's speculating on and what it's indicating is absolutely consistent with that. Yes. When will we as a global society and a global culture fully embrace that obvious lesson? Right. When? Yeah. When, when are we going to do it? Yeah. 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 It's sitting there. Diversity is arguably the reason that we exist today. Yeah. But we still have a very jaundiced view of diversity. And, it's, and it is the reason that we may continue to exist in the future if we will embrace it and not just put up with it, embrace it. Right. Yeah. Okay. We thought that one was really interesting. That ought to be headline news. Here's another one that's really interesting. And man, we're going to get into some stuff here where I really don't understand yep. a lot of this. Yep. As Ron Burgundy said in the Anchorman movie, it's science. <laughs> But I want to be aware of it. I want to I want to hear about it, and I want to try to understand at least at a very elemental level, elementary level. Elementary is hard to say. It is. <laughs> so, so here's an article by Dennis Overby. I believe I'm pronouncing Dennis's name right. It was published um, earlier uh, this year, and it's called "Nothing's the Matter with Antimatter." New experiment confirms. Hmm. I like that. That's a catchy little title. It I is. I like that. Okay, so let's talk about this. Antimatter, 
Dennis says, just lost a little more pizzazz. Are people listening to this and going, did it ever have pizzazz? <laughs> it's like in the science community, trust oh, me, yeah. oh. it's got a lot of pizzazz. Antimatter is sexy. <laughs> yep. So Dennis says, physicists know that for every fundamental particle in nature, there is an antiparticle, an evil twin of identical mass and spin, but endowed with equal and opposite electrical charges. When these twins meet, they obliterate each other, releasing a flash of energy on contact. In science fiction, antiparticles provide the power for warp drives. Oh, we all know about warp drives. Okay, now people are going, oh, oh now I get oh, it. Oh, okay, now I get it. Some physicists have speculated that antiparticles are being repelled by gravity or even traveling backward in time. What? Okay, now you got my interest there, too. A new experiment at the European Center for Nuclear Research brings some of that speculation back down to Earth. Aw, very clever turn of the phrase there, by the way. In a gravitational field, it turns out antiparticles fall just like the rest of us. Hmm. Uh, a gentleman from Berkeley says, the bottom line is that there's no free lunch and we're not going to be able to levitate using antimatter. So you're telling me <laughs> you've taken away one of my great hopes, oh, which man. is to levitate. Yeah, come on. All right. Come but, on, come on. Hey, what did we say just a few minutes ago? <laughs> Knowledge evolves, <laughs> Knowledge so we still evolves. might get there. You got it. Few physicists were surprised by this result. According to Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity, all forms of matter and energy respond equally to gravity. So Einstein had that one right. He had think. it right, okay. as so many other things. Yeah. A physicist at the University of Cal Berkeley said, if you walk down the halls of this department and ask the physicists, they would all say that this result is not the least bit surprising. I just love the visual of that. Every, everybody's there. They've had their coffee right. walking down the hallway yeah. at Berkeley. Hey, did you hear that thing about antimatter and gravity? Yeah, I yeah. called that one. I knew that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had, I the, had the under. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had the under on that one. Oh, God. Okay, quote, most of them, the scientists, will also say that the experiment had to be done because you never can be sure. The opposite result would have had big implications. So you're still trying to learn something. And it's like, well, I'm 99% sure. Yeah, we've talked a lot about sources of information and input and output and how we get that and how important it is to have that be ideal-based or to have multiple sources. Here's a situation, in all seriousness, where... These folks are going, we're virtually certain yes. of how this is going to go, but we're going to go ahead and check it anyway right? to be sure, as opposed to just spouting off, nah, you don't need to go look at that. Yeah, because the implications could have been so significant. Right, mm -hmm. right. But the result leaves hanging another puzzle and not just Lee's levitation challenge. <laughs> you know? According to relativity and to quantum mechanics, the two quarreling theories that rule the universe, and I will tell you, I don't totally understand either one of those. That's okay. I have awareness of both, but I don't understand either one. But according to both of these, the Big Bang should have created equal amounts of matter and antimatter, which should have annihilated each other long ago. Yet our universe is all matter with nary a speck of antimatter to be found hmm. outside of cosmic ray showers and particle collider collisions. So what happened? Why does the cosmos contain something rather than nothing? The question hmm. has burned for almost a century already. And some of you may be going, I never heard this question. 
Yeah. I never, that, that's been a burning question. It's like, yeah, some people have been living their lives trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Why does the cosmos contain something rather than nothing? nothing. <laughs> Dr. Wortelli, who's the Berkeley uh, gentleman that we're referring to, said, since our answer is consistent with normal gravity, I don't think it gives any hints, unfortunately, which is another way of saying we still don't know why we're here. Dang it. That's kind of a big It's kind of a big question. Deal. Yeah. Why are we here? Why, why does the universe consist of something rather than nothing? Matter and antimatter would suggest we shouldn't be here. Yeah, that those two forces would have annihilated yeah. one another. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I know and I know I shouldn't have called them forces, but Yes, yeah. yet we're here. Yeah. So let's turn our attention to another cool science thing. Study shows, are you ready? Plants scream when they are stressed or injured. Scream. So I'm going to hold my microphone up to the fern to my right, and Dave's going to kick it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Tomato and tobacco plants make distinctive sounds when they are cut or dehydrated, a new scientific study has discovered. Hmm. Those sounds change depending on the plant emitting them. And they change on the type and severity of the threat that prompts them. These findings shattered the common perception of plants as being silent, passive players to the animal life in their environments. Hey, Fern over there, keep it down. Keep it down. We're we're trying to podcast We're doing a podcast. Come on. Instead, these findings show that plants can and do send out signals that animals in their environment can hear and pick up on. And most importantly of all, Animals may be hearing these plant signals and using them to change their behavior, the animal's behavior. Okay, so lots of times we have this image that the plant and animal world is sitting there passively and waiting for us humans Mm -hmm. to interact with them and to do something with them. Yeah, good or bad. And, And in all seriousness, that's always been absurd. Yes. If, if we pay attention and are aware, certainly animals interacting with one another, and certainly we're now saying plants interacting with animals. And mm-hmm. we, we know in some fashion that some of this has been happening forever. I guess the, the situation that pops up to me is there are certainly situations in pollination where plants mm-hmm. are responding to what animals, bees, or others are doing to them, and, yes. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. We've seen that. We know that. But yet kind of saying that that is intentional or that there is a voice that is doing that, it's like, wait, us humans are the ones that do that. Yeah. Y'all, don't, y'all don't do that with each other. And, and now I kind of feel left out. Yeah. All sorts of stuff is going on here, and I'm not even aware that it's going on. Yeah. Well, hello. Welcome to the party, pal. Hey. Yeah. Shout out Shout out to a wonderful book titled An Immense World by mm-hmm. Ed Young. Read it. It's all about this stuff. There you go. So tomatoes left without water began making noise on the second day, even while the tomato still looks good. Lilak Hadani, I believe I'm saying her name right, a Tel Aviv University mathematician who co-authored the study, said that the sounds which somewhat resembled the noise of popcorn popping peaked after five days of water stress and then began to decline as the plant dried out. The sounds happen at the approximate level, volume, of human speech, but outside the range of our hearing. hearing. I think we're all aware that we there are sounds we can't hear. Right. And again, we tend to dismiss those and yeah. kind of go, well, no. 
we can we can hear everything yeah, because or, we're or or I'm aware that I can't hear everything, but therefore that other stuff may not be important because we're like the guardians and caretakers of all this, right? We're the directors we're, on this stage. We're above all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, they also differed these sounds depending on the plant making them. So there's more than one set of sounds. Hmm. Each plant may hmm. have their huh, and the form of injury. We do that, right? Different kinds of injuries that we get, we give different kinds of hollers and screams, right? Sounds like they may be doing the same. With cut and dehydrated plants making different noises. The research opens the tantalizing possibility that for organisms able to hear these pitches, a landscape of plants is also a soundscape of information, revealing essential information about both plants and the wider environment. Hadani runs a lab at Tel Aviv University in Israel that uses machine learning to study plant evolution, including the emerging field of plant acoustics, and in particular, how plants use sound. So the word use in that sentence is a bit of a landmine in scientific circles. It can imply a level of intent that scientists have traditionally been reluctant to ascribe to plants. Oh, no, wait a minute, Lee. So... We now have this issue that maybe plants and animals are going around us. I mean, they're talking to each other without going through us. And now we're going to use machine learning, AI, to study. Okay, great. Now AI, animals, and plants are all going around us. Yeah. They're going to take our jobs eventually. What is the world coming to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I used to fear robots. Not any longer. Now it's plants and animals, right? Okay. So consensus on the matter has slowly softened in recent years. A considerable body of evidence suggests that plants emit cues that other plants and pollinators pick up on, in particular by releasing floating airborne chemicals. Hmm. It made sense that plants would also use sound, Hadani said, since sound takes little energy to produce and it carries a long way. But when Hadani began considering earlier in her career whether to investigate whether plants might hear sounds in their environment and even send audio signals of their own, colleagues warned her to wait for fear of damaging her career. Hey, listen up. Uh, Do you want a successful career as a scientist? Oh, you do? Then ixnay on the whole plants talking thing. You know, that whole curiosity thing, you're... That part of your curiosity that's going off over here, ah, 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 no, you need to rein that no, in. No, come on, come on. The colleague said, do not work on it before you have tenure. Mm. Ah, Adani said, noting that the whole topic had a slightly disreputable flavor in academia. But now that I am a full professor, she says, it is good. And as someone who's a member of <laughs> higher education... <laughs> That says a lot. It says a lot. Oh, I have tenure now. I can get away with whatever it is I wish to get away with. Okay. So previous research out of her lab found that some plants can hear and change their behaviors based on what they are hearing. When her team played the sound of buzzing bees near primrose bushes, their flowers began within a few minutes to release sweeter nectar. Wow. Come here, baby. Wow. Come to mama. That's that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So these primrose bushes heard the bees through the flowers themselves, which perhaps helps explain why bees hover and buzz near flowers. These findings open the door to larger questions, Hadani said. The existence of one such channel of helpful, audible information 
which gives pollinators a way to signal their presence to plants and plants an opportunity to woo them, suggested the kind of two-way relationship that evolution often works to strengthen. Quote, once you have this interaction, there is selection on both sides to improve hearing and improve emissions of sound. I wonder if there's like a, a uh, bee or flower therapist that goes, you all, you, know, you all could improve your communication. You know, let's get together. You, okay, you've started. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's, bees, let's open up. Like, come on now. Come on. I think that buzz had some anger in it. We need to let that go. Okay, Hadani said, hearing and interpreting such information can be particularly important to plants, which have an even greater need than animals to, quote, interact with their environment, to respond to their environment, because it cannot go to a different environment, right? It's mm. rooted. It's yep. not mobile. So plants use environmental information to trigger the production of new chemicals or physiological responses from generating insecticides or retaining water to turning to follow the sun. Discovering that plants could hear hovering bees then led Hadani's team to ask if they could also transmit news of drought or distress. Well, surely they can't do that, I wouldn't think. But the team found that they could. Wow. Through means that are still poorly understood, but may involve the release of bubbles through the plant's stalks. So let me posit, a, I think this is where this is heading. For those of us who enjoy having plants in our homes, the day will come when we're going to be able to hear through some microphone speaker system a plant going, uh, you haven't watered me this week, getting a little dry over here. Wouldn't that be we're, amazing. We're, we're, we're in all seriousness Amazing. Here. Wouldn't that be amazing. amazing? And how would that change how we feel about this incredible planet that we're living on, this incredible universe that we're in, if we understood that we're all connected or can be? And there's intelligence in everything. Yes. yes. All right. So further study will be needed to determine if other plants or animals can hear the sounds of crying tomatoes or tobacco. If they do, such knowledge could drive other nearby plants to take protective action, like closing up their hatches against water loss or maybe bacterial threat. It could also provide a definite advantage to animals who can hear it. For example, moths that lay eggs on tomatoes can hear frequencies in the range that tomatoes are transmitting. Okay, so in closing on this story, uh, we'll do a quote from the already classic book, All the Light We Cannot See, Pulitzer Prize winner, and it's a wonderful new movie that's been made as well. And the quote from that book that the lead character says is, everything has a voice. You just have to listen. Yes. And it is that notion that we've talked about of paying attention. Yeah. And of being open, being curious, being humble, and the knowledge that we have today knowing that that knowledge is going to expand if we're curious. So curiosity has worth in its own regard, but when you couple it with humility, yeah, you've really got something powerful. There you go. Okay, so another article we wanted to talk about from the world of science, and this one's fascinating as well. Scientists believe your own consciousness can interact with the entire universe. Recent article from Vincent Ledbetter and so let's read from this. When people talk about consciousness or the mind, it's always a little vague. 
whether we create consciousness as a function of neurons firing in our brains or whether consciousness exists independently of us, there is no universally accepted scientific explanation for where it comes from or where it resides. Pause on that one. Yeah. We don't know. <laughs> we, we don't know consciousness, which is everything that we're picking up and sensing in our talking, everything. We don't know where it comes from right. or where it resides. Right. Did we all know that? I, I had not thought of it quite this way until I read this article. And then I started noticing that this deal of where does consciousness reside? I've now noticed it four or five times mm -hmm. in different things I've read or in, and like in TV shows now, recent TV shows. Yep. It's picking up steam, guys. This is like AI five or ten years ago. It's coming. Yep. Okay, so however, new research on the physics, anatomy, and geometry of consciousness has begun to reveal its possible nature. Hmm. In other words, we may soon be able to identify the true architecture of consciousness. So very broadly speaking, it has been claimed that consciousness is a process facilitated by microtubules. Say that one more time, Lee. Microtubules in nerve cells of the brain. These are tubes made of protein, and they form part of the cell's cytoskeleton, which is its structural network. Scientists suggest that consciousness is a quantum wave that travels through these microtubules. Hmm. Ordinary states of consciousness may be those that we consider absolutely normal. For example, we know that we exist. But when you have heightened states of consciousness, it's because you're dealing with quantum level consciousness that is able to be in all places at the same time. I think there were those people who took hallucinatory drugs to get to this place, right? Yeah. This means that consciousness could connect to quantum particles outside your brain and theoretically anywhere in the universe. Many experts, however, have questioned the validity of this theory. This theory would be that, that, again, our consciousness are waves as opposed to being kind of a, more of a physical thing, I oh, guess right. is the way an, I would an call internal it. internal operation. Yeah. yeah. And that the waves of consciousness could be going out from us. Beyond our brains. And then we have waves that could be coming from other places in the universe. Yes. And other people that are coming into us. Yes. And that causes different levels of awareness. The possibility, the writers go on to say, that our experience of free will, having the option to choose our lives, as well as our perception that there is a consciousness outside of us, is the result of an awareness, hang on, of other universes that exist within our state space. Hmm. In the scenarios, we are actually receiving information about versions of ourselves in other universes who are also navigating the same strange attraction. It also accounts for our consciousness, free will, and sense of being connected to a larger universe. The theory still doesn't tell us what consciousness is, but maybe it tells us where consciousness lives. What type of structure is it located in? This means that it's not just a supernatural disjointed concept, if consciousness is located somewhere, even if it is a complex state space, we can find it. And this is a start. How cool would it be? Wow. How cool would it be if something like this were, 
happened. And basically, you know, part of what they're suggesting in this article is uh, th- that we have this connection. Yeah. And, and so some of the things where a thought pops up or we're trying to solve a problem mm-hmm. and, oh, oh, here's, here's the answer to it. And that is coming from waves that are coming in from other versions of us, right? That have solved this problem, yeah. or that have lived that experience, yes, yeah, or from yeah. other places. places. Oh, it's astonishing. That seems pretty cool to me. It's very, very cool. Yeah. Uh, there's one thing that I don't think is cool. Okay, the idea of many of me. I, I'm not. <laughs> that ain't good for nobody. Look, <laughs> look. We'd love to have more versions of you. Okay, that would that would be a blessing to the world. <laughs> Let's go on to our next scientific study here. And I think this is our last article for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The quest for scientific certainty is futile. Okay, now we've just kind of hit on this previous in our conversation today. We can get frustrated, right, and annoyed and impatient with, now wait a minute, I thought science just concluded X. And then a year or two later, you read something or listen to something and go, no, I guess not. So that's scientific certainty. It's very elusive. All right. So this is from an article by Adam Mastroianni. The more I learn about science, the more I discover basic mysteries that I assume were solved long ago. Perhaps we've exited the dark ages, but our own age still seems rather dim. How do you make sense of a world where the scientific sands are always shifting and where so much remains unknown? It's taken me a long time, but I've made peace with it by learning to hold everything loosely to remain humble about what we do know and optimistic about what we will know. There's that humility word. An optimism word. It was hard to get there, the writer says, because I had to learn over and over again that extreme conviction requires extraordinary evidence. And the evidence we have is usually far from extraordinary. Even in basic science, mysteries abound. Physicists, for example, still aren't certain whether cold water freezes faster than hot water. Astronomers hypothesize that invisible dark matter and energy fill the universe, but as we've said, they don't really know what it is. When I was younger, the writer says, I met every scientific revelation and reversal with righteous credulity. For instance, if I found evidence that sunscreen didn't prevent skin cancer, then it doesn't. (laughs) And thank goodness we finally know the truth. I'm adding my own little emotion there to his words to make the point. Your emphasis. Yes. On beach trips, I would dramatically refuse any proffered bottle of sunscreen and lecture my family and friends about its overblown promises. As I got older and finished my Ph.D., my credulity gave way to despair. Good science is simply too hard. Best just to give up. What sustains me now is neither certainty nor hopelessness, but a determined, humble optimism. The right answers are often simply unknown, and I might die without getting to know the full truth, and yet the truth will be known one day. I love that statement. And yet the truth Truth will will be be known known one day. day. I love it. Just as we solve many of the mysteries that befuddled our ancestors, our descendants will solve many of the mysteries that currently befuddle us. Our ignorance is profound, but it's also forgivable and it's also temporary. There are only two true errors. One error is believing that we have no errors left to make. And the other error is believing that those errors are permanent and irreversible. Mm. 
It's hard to maintain this attitude when you realize just how much we have left to figure out. And we often have to cultivate this attitude for ourselves because our educators and experts often fail to give it to us. When I was in high school, my science teachers implied that the universe was a collection of dull, ancient facts, and my job was to memorize and repeat them. Nobody mentioned all the mysteries left unsolved or suggested that it might be great fun to solve them. Our teachers and officials may think the public simply can't handle uncertainty, and maybe that's why they project so much confidence even when the science is faulty. But the best way to cultivate informed citizens is to give them the evidence that we have, not the evidence we wish we, we had. had. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we thought that was a good wrap on our science podcast today. A couple of more things. We do have a wonderful quote from Maya Angelou that we think relates to all of this. And this quote says, Do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Yeah. I love oh, it. The journey of life. Do the best you can until you know better. Yeah. And once you get that knowledge, do better with that new knowledge. And you do the best you can today. Yeah. on the basis of what we know or what we speculate. Right. And then we learn. Uh, with the humility and understanding that it's going to evolve, it's going to change, and we're not going to know everything we need to know probably in our lifetime. Right. And that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So let's close with a moment of optimism, momentum, and gratitude. Today, we are thankful for our capability to be endlessly curious about life and our world, but also eternally humble about our place in this universe. A quote from Marcus Aurelius, humility is the foundation of all virtues for it allows us to approach every situation with an open mind and a willingness to learn from others. As we close, we ask, what are your ideals, your pictures? What are your actions to take and your influence to use? Thank you for listening. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. As always, feel free to explore more about Pictures Out There at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams, the day of your pictures. <laughs>